Our Father, we thank you for the provision of Jesus Christ, whom we have seen in the Word. And Father, even as we have been exhorted by the Apostle Peter in this passage, we, we desire to know Christ and we desire to know this Word. And Father, we even say that, that we are hungry for this truth, even as an A newborn infant is hungry to be fed the milk of its mother. And Father, we need this milk of the Word that will feed us, sustain us, inform us, transform us. It it is this Word and this Word alone applied by the Holy Spirit of God that will cause us to grow in Christ. And specifically this morning, Father, as we think about our growth in Christ, what we really want to see have, or what we really want to have happen in our lives and see happen in our lives is that we would fight more effectively against sin. Father, there is sin all around us. We are inundated with temptations day after day after day. And we grieve over the effect of sin in our lives. And Father, you have, you have said that sin is no longer our master if we are in Christ. But we want the mastery of Christ to be proven true in our lives, even this day and this week. And so would you, by this word that is before us, transform us into the image of Christ, transform us into those who fight more effectively against the sin we have been called to kill and to mortify. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Several years after inventing the radar, Sir Robert Watson Watt was arrested in Canada for speeding. Caught, ironically enough, in a radar trap. To commemorate this infamous event in his life, he wrote this brief poem about himself. Pity Sir, poor Sir Robert Watson Watt, strange target of a radar plot. And this with others I could mention, a victim of his own invention. Watt is not the only one, though, who has been caught by his own invention and devices, is he? We also have too often been ensnared and trapped by our own sinful desires and actions and inventions. How will we get out of the trap of sin? The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Paul in in Romans chapter 8 is telling us to walk by the Spirit. The whole chapter is focused around the Spirit and the spiritual life and how we might walk according to the Spirit. And part of that, he says, in walking with the Spirit and walking according to the Spirit is to kill the flesh, to kill remaining sin in our lives. But how are we going to do that? Paul says, in uh, Romans chapter 8, to live in the Spirit is to live aggressively against the flesh. That's the, the theme of, of this particular passage. If we're going to live spiritually, if we're going to live wisely, if we're going to live in submission to the Holy Spirit of God, we're going to also live aggressively fighting against the flesh. But how will we do that? What, what will that look like? And while Paul doesn't answer that question directly in Romans chapter 8, he does answer that question in Colossians chapter 3, and uh, th- I want you to turn there again with me, even as we looked at there at that passage last week, Rome, or Colossians chapter three, and we will see in this passage five ingredients of a life that is mortifying the flesh, five ingredients of a life that is pushing back against sin, five ingredients of the life that that is resisting sin and fighting aggressively against sin and against the flesh. We saw the first two of those last week, and we will see the third one this week and the fourth and fifth ones next week. 
To live in the Spirit is to live aggressively against the flesh. How will we do that? Paul says in verse 1 that we will do that by seeking God as our primary desire. Now, remember, Paul is talking in chapter 2 about, about fighting against sin, fighting against, against the corruption of the flesh. And he says there are some ways to do it that, that will be of, of no value to you. There, there are, are legalistic ways and, and even practices of asceticism that he says in verse 23, have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. So self-made religion, that's, that's legalism, I'll be righteous on my own. Self-abasement, severe treatment of the body, that's, that's asceticism. And those appear to be wise. Those, those appear to be good ways to push against sin and push against the flesh. But notice what he says in 2.23, they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. He doesn't say, well, they'll help sometimes, but, but not always. He doesn't say, They'll, they'll help sometimes, but not always. He says they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You want to push against the flesh. If you want to push against sin, you need something more than legalism and asceticism. And what you need, he says in chapter 3, verse 1, is to keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What you need is to lean in towards Christ. What you need is to push towards and have a desire for Christ. You must long for Him and desire Him and treasure Him. You must keep pursuing heavenly ideals and keep pursuing Christ and keep pursuing conformity to Christ. We might say it this way. Only when Christ is supremely compelling to us will sin no longer be compelling to us. Or turn that around. As long as anything but Christ is most compelling to us, we will not beat back sin. As long as you desire anything but Jesus Christ, you will not destroy, beat back, kill, mortify sin. And Paul's point is, you have been raised up with Christ. Notice the first part of that verse. If you have been raised up with Christ, and again, it has a sense of since you have been raised up with Christ, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a Christian, and that is your position. You've been raised up with Him. You have been raised up to live like Him. You've been raised up to be freed from the power of sin over your life. And so because that is true, then pursue Him. You have been raised up with Christ, so keep seeking the things above, and specifically, keep seeking Him. This week, John Bloom wrote an article about Henry David Thoreau and Thoreau's attempt to live simply and without wasting his life. Uh, Thoreau talked about that in his book, Walden, Walden Pond. And in that book, he writes this, I went to the woods... Because I wish to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not when I came to die discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear. So, so he wanted to pursue all of life in all of its fullness. Bloom critiqued his attempt. He writes this. It's interesting that, that, uh, that Thoreau's closing remarks in the book express a longing for, quote, a resurrection and immortality. Walden Pond helped him see things, but he still hadn't found what he was looking for, resurrection and immortality. Yet Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Which is why Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it's why Paul said that those who put their hope in the resurrection and the life store up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Resurrection and immortality. Bloom continues, no one in heaven envies the rich of this world. 
No one in heaven covets the famous. No one in heaven praises the powerful. They have discovered what it means to live deep and suck all the marrow out of life. They have found that which is truly life, Jesus Christ. Thoreau looked for it. Thoreau longed for it. The world looks for that which is satisfying and life-giving. But only in Christ will that be found. If you want to push against sin, if you want transformation, if you want to really live, then you must desire God as your primary interest. There's a second principle that Paul gives us in verses 2 through 4, and that is you must not only pursue Christ as, and God as your primary desire, but you must change the way you think about God. So Paul says in verse 2, set your mind on the things above. That, what's, he, what's he mean by that? He means you need to start thinking in heavenly ways. You need to not just desire Christ, but you need to start thinking about Christ and thinking about heavenly ways and being intentional with your thoughts. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. So the tendency is to have our thoughts captivated by worldly desires and worldly interests. And Paul says you need to lay those things aside and set your mind on Christ and on our heavenly thing and and the heavenly desires. Why? Because you have died, verse 3, and your life is hidden with Christ. So Christ is your protection. Christ is your provision. Everything that you have is in Christ, and He hides it. He protects it. He keeps it. But not only that, verse 4, when Christ, notice the little parenthetical phrase He makes, when Christ, who is our life, Christ isn't just something about life. Christ is our life. Christ is the center of our life. Christ is the focus of our life. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. In other words, you need to think about the fact that in heaven you have been hidden and protected by Christ. He's secured your salvation. That's verse 3. But you also need to be focusing on the fact that in heaven He will be revealed... And you will see Him in all the fullness of His glory. And in that moment, you also will be transformed so that your glory also will be revealed with Him. In other words, you're working towards an end when when you will be perfected, when sin will be removed, you'll be fully sanctified. And you need to be thinking about that now. And if you want to, if you want to put aside the things that are on the earth and you want to Set your mind on things that are above. You need to be thinking two particular ways, he says in verse 3, about our life that's protected by Christ and about what our life with Christ will be like in all of eternity. Can I just say this, friends? Too many of us are living poorly in sin because we are thinking poorly about God. When, When we see Him as a treasure, when we see God as providing everything we need, when we, when we see Christ as infinitely valuable, we were, will pursue Him and our minds will be captivated by Him. This is what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 13 in two separate parables. Verse 44, He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and then he hid again and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. If he finds a, fee, finds a pearl in a field, he'll put that pearl in a place where he can buy that other field and then he will have the treasure of that pearl. He will give everything to get that pearl. That's what salvation is like, Jesus says. That's what Christ, who is the author of our salvation, is. Again, verse 45, a second parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, friend, when when you find Jesus Christ to be valuable, you will set your mind on Him and He will captivate you and you will long for Him and desire Him with your thoughts. To fight against sin, 
Jesus Christ must not be thought of as something to be added to life. He must be thought of and embraced as the singular end of life. He is, verse 4, our life. For me, Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. That was weak. For me to live is Christ. You're getting there. For me to live is Christ. There you go. Do you believe that? Is Christ your life? Is Christ the focus and the intention of your life? Christ must be thought of and embraced and loved. It's the greatest commandment we've been given. For you shall love the Lord your God with some of your heart and with some of your soul and with some of your life. Is that it? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. He's everything. And friend, if loving God is the greatest commandment, then not loving Him is the greatest sin. Oh friend, if you do not love Him supremely, then you will love anything else supremely. If you want to push back against sin, it it begins by seeking God as your primary desire and then changing the way you think about God and His purposes in your life. There's a third principle that Paul gives us in verses 5 through 9, and it is that you must change the way you think about sin. Change the way you think, not just about God, but verses 5 through 9. Change the way you think about sin. Friends, the battle against sin is a battle that begins first in the mind. Notice what he says in verse 5. Therefore, consider, think on, meditate on, account as true, Act as if it's true. Here's a reality that you must know and then must act on. So verse 2, he says, set your mind on things above. Verse 5, consider, think, dwell, meditate on. And we don't have the time to play it out this morning, but maybe just in your margin, write down some of these Scripture passages as a reminder of of the importance of, of setting your mind against sin and fighting the fight against sin first in the mind. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, sinful living begins with deceived thinking. Mark chapter 7, verse 21, unrighteous living is the result of unrighteous desires and an unrighteous heart. If you want, if you want to do deeds that please God, first your, your desires and your thinking need to be transformed. Romans chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Transformed living is the result of transformed or renewed thinking. And you can never put off sin until you have first thought about sin in a new way. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Childish and immature living is the result of childish thinking. You want to live as a mature man? Then do what Paul did and put away childish words and childish thoughts and childish reasoning. And then when you put those kinds of thoughts and ways of thinking away, then you'll become mature. Second Corinthians chapter five, it's chapter 10 verse 5. Satan's primary attacks to us are through a worldly philosophy that, that attacks the knowledge of God. If we want to know God, Our minds must be captivated by God, controlled by God. If you want to fight against sin, the battle begins in the mind. And what kinds of things does Paul says we need to consider? What kinds of things do we need to think about sin? He says, first of all, in verses 5 through 8, identify sin for what it is. Now again, Paul's drawing a conclusion. He's talked about a new way to think about God in verses 1 through 4. Now notice verse 5. Therefore, he's coming to a conclusion or making a transition. If this is the way we think about God, then there ought to be a corresponding way to the way we think about sin. And so he says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. We ought to think in particular ways about our salvation. And first of all, one of the things he's going to say as he identifies, uh, teaches us to identify sin for what what it is, 
He will tell us continually identify both sinful actions and sinful attitudes. As we're trying to pursue identifying sin, thinking about sin for what it really is, he says we ought to continually identify both sinful actions and sinful attitudes. And he says, verse 5, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Here he's hearkening back to our position in Jesus Christ, which he's laid out in Colossians 1 and 2. He's also laid that out particularly in Romans chapter 6, hasn't he? We've been baptized with Jesus Christ into his death, and we've been baptized with Jesus Christ into his resurrection, and, and we have been connected with him, identified with him, so that we are no longer an Adam, we're no longer controlled by Adamic original sin. We have a new master We have a new Lord. We can now serve Christ. We don't have to serve sin. Now, it's not true of the unbeliever. The unbeliever is still stuck. The unbeliever still has to serve sin. But Paul says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. I'm dead to these things. They no longer are my master. On our... um, Counseling intake form, when we have people that call uh, the church and they're wanting to get some counseling help, we send them a form and it's several pages of just some basic information about their situation. And then we ask them a a number of questions on the back page that are open-ended. So four questions. The first one is, what's your problem? Second question is, what have you done about your problem? One, one, uh, One man had sent it in and I was supposed to start counseling with him. I read through the form. He was not married to the woman that he was living with, and they were having all sorts of trouble. And so um, the, the question, you know, what's your problem, was something like, uh, we don't get along, and uh, we're having trouble communicating. What have you done about it? I quote, fight, yell, leave, drink beer, smoke pot. And I'm thinking, so, how's that working for you? Unfortunately... We made an appointment, and he, he and his girlfriend never showed up. But I've thought about, I've thought about that, that form many times. That's a man that cannot help himself. He, he, can't, he can't do anything about his sin. He can't do anything about his relational problems. And so those kinds of things, fighting and yelling and smoking pot, just seem to be a natural response. But it's not just the guy that goes into intentional, willful sin, right? It's also the moralist. The moralist can say, I've, I've gone to counseling previously and I've, I've done all the right things and I've, I've tried to say the right kinds of words, but, but we're still having problems. Why? Because the moralist can't change himself any more than the licentious person can change himself. He, he cannot be transformed. The only way to be changed is by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And and Paul says, if you've been raised up with Jesus Christ, verse 1, then verse 5, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sin. It's not your master. You don't have to do this anymore. Friend, you have been liberated. And then in verses 5 to 8, and really the first part of verse 9, Paul identifies three kinds of sin from which the believer is liberated. He's liberated from some particular actions. He's been liberated from some particular kinds of words. And he's liberated from some particular kinds of desires. And and just as a footnote, this is not an exhaustive list. This is a representative list. This is These are the kinds of things from which a believer has been liberated, though not the extensive list of things from which we have been liberated. Notice he says, verse 5, first of all, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality and impurity. Those are two deeds. Those are two kinds of activities from which the believer has been liberated. You've been liberated from immorality. And the word he uses there for immorality is the word porneia. It's the word from which we get our word pornography. And it is, it is an all-encompassing word for all kinds of sexual sin. And Paul says, as a believer in Jesus Christ, 
You have been liberated from sexual sin. You don't need to think about sex the way the world does. You can think about it in a different way and you can conduct yourself in a different way from the way the world does in a way that will be satisfying to you. You can think, for instance, Paul will say in 1 Timothy chapter 5, you can think about the opposite sex in righteous ways. You can think of men as brothers and women as sisters and not as the object of some sexual desire. You've been freed from immorality. You're also freed, he says, from impurity. That's the word uncleanness. It it is the opposite of holiness. And, And he's not just talking there about impurity in the sexual realm, but he's talking about impurity in every realm. Every kind of impurity. It's a broad term for unrighteousness. And Paul says we've been freed from all that stuff that keeps us living in sin. Not only have we been freed from, from ungodly activities, things, things that were compelling to do when we were outside of Christ, he also identifies some sins of speech from which we are, are freed. Notice verse 8. But now you also put them all aside... Anger, that, that's, that's a settled, long-lasting, vengeful kind of anger. It might be, it might be a quiet kind of anger. It's that, it's that seething underneath the surface. It might be that kind of anger that, that wells up ultimately into bitterness. But it's that, that long, slow, deep burn. There's also another kind of anger. He says, he calls it a wrath. That's explosive. Burning, quick anger. This is intense indignation. And and Paul says about both of them, you've been freed from that. And malice, that's anger that's expressed in physical action. It's a bent towards hurting others. Things like murdering and committing adultery and stealing and bearing false witness against them. There's slander, belittling others and, and causing them to fall into disrepute. Notice he also um, identifies abusive speech that's obscene, filthy, dirty, talking, language. And then in verse 9, he identifies lie, lying, and he says, do not lie to one another. In fact, he doesn't just say, do not lie to one another, but he says, stop lying to one another. Words to, to one another. In other words, you've already started lying. Stop the lying. Don't do it anymore. All these things, he says... You don't have to do. You're dead to those things. Now, don't you know people that are controlled by those kinds of sins? Some of you may have been controlled by some of those things. Some of you may be particularly tempted to engage in those kinds of sin. And Paul says, that's not your identity anymore. You're not enslaved to that anymore. You're in Jesus Christ and you are, he says, dead to that. You can put it aside. He also identifies some some sins of desire to which we have died. Notice the middle of verse 5. Some sins of desire. Passion. That's a depraved, dishonorable passion that doesn't rest until it is satisfied. It might even be said that that it's almost inherently a part of the person. It's, It's this ingrained passion for sin and rebellion against God. Evil lusts or evil desires. This is any kind of evil longing or any kind of evil thought. This is, this is anything that pushes against God. And then there is greed. Again, middle of verse 5. Insatiable selfishness. It could, could refer to money, but, but probably goes beyond money to be all-encompassing, any kind of greed, any kind of covetousness in general. And the problem with that kind of greed is that it amounts to idolatry. I would rather have this object instead of God. I will trade $3 or $30 or $300 for God. I'd rather have gold than God. To which Stephen Charnock, the Puritan, says this, Every sin is a kind of cursing of God in the heart. It is an aim at the destruction of the being of God. Not actually, but virtually. 
A man in every sin aims to set up his own will as his rule and his own glory as the end of his actions against the will and the glory of God. And Paul here has identified three kinds of sin and these sins apply to everyone. And and, and Paul in in dealing with these, has dealt with both the inner man, what's inside of me, and the outer man, what comes out of me, and what I do and what I say. So whether you are 5 or 85, this list is for you. And Paul particularly says that, that you cannot cultivate those desires, the desires of of uh, passion and evil and greed without them having corrupted your heart and producing sinful actions and sinful words. And so the question is, what do my words say about my desires? What do my deeds say about my desires? Friends, if we are going to mortify the flesh, we are constantly going to be asking the question, Are my words and my actions flowing from a heart that is similar to what Paul's talking about here? This is an opportunity for self-examination. It's an opportunity for us to be truthful about ourselves. We are are massively prone to self-deception. And Paul pulls back the pages of our lives and heart, as it were, and opens the curtain and says, Look inside. And see what's really going on. Is this really you? And and as you're looking inside, we're also invited to identify what is at the root of our sin and our sinful desires. Listen to John MacArthur. Our sin is a calculated, deliberate violation of the relationship we have with our Creator. When we sin... We show disdain for God's fatherly love as well as as for His holy authority. We spurn not merely His law, but also His very person. To sin is to deny God His place. It is an expression of hatred against God. It is tantamount to wishing He were dead. End quote. What What is your sin saying about you? What what is your life revealing about your actions and what's going on inside of you? And are you evaluating and saying, what's sinful here? Are my actions sinful? Are my desires sinful? Do Do my actions line up with what I was? Or do my actions, words, and desires line up with what I am in Jesus Christ? And Paul tells us why we need to be attentive to this. Verse 6, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. God will pour out His wrath on the unrepentant, unrighteous people because of these very kinds of things. This is no triviality. This is no trifle. It's not a small thing. It is a massive thing. And not only... Not only will God pour out His wrath against people for committing sins like this, but notice verse 7, And in them you also once walked or, or lived when you were living in them. That, that is what you were. That, that is how you conducted yourself when that's what your life was. But, but now in Jesus Christ, you are different. And your life ought to reflect that difference. In our neighborhood... Uh, we, we don't get very many trick-or-treaters just because the houses are kind of spaced far apart and, and uh, kind of hard to get to and we're on a very a fairly busy road and a, and a narrow road. So we'd only been there a couple of years. The previous house we, we lived in, we shut the door, the, I think the first year, we shut the door, turned out the lights and hid in the back when we got to 200 trick-or-treaters. And, um, and the, this house... We were thinking the same kind of thing and we bought candy for 200 trick-or-treaters and we typically get enough trick-or-treaters to, that we can count on two hands. And so it was one or two years into that process where I figured, hey, we only get a few trick-or-treaters. Now we can start getting the good candy and maybe there will be some leftovers. So I like giving out candy 
because I know that there's going to be some leftovers. Now, I live with someone who really likes to give out candy, and so where I'm thinking, give them one, and then there's, you know, one for you, two for me. Regina's saying, excuse me, somebody in my house says, three for you, none for dad. So I like giving out candy at Halloween, except for one. You ever had those 18-year-olds that come to your house dressed like a vampire or something, holding out a bag for candy? It's like, seriously, can you not get a job and go buy your own candy? (laughs) One time I couldn't help myself and I actually said something to that effect. Why, Why is that an irritant? Because you're not five years old. The candy's for the kids. It's not for you. You're an adult. What do I want to say? I didn't say it quite this bluntly, but grow up. Grow up. Start acting like a man. Be a man. There are some things that men shouldn't do. Friends, it's the same for a believer in Jesus Christ. There are some things that just shouldn't be part of us. It's time for us to grow up. It's time for us to start acting as what we are. We are no longer living in immorality and impurity and passions and evil desires and anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech. And because that's not who we are in Jesus Christ, we need to start conducting ourselves that way. Continually identify sinful actions and sinful attitudes in your life. Where are you inclined to sin? What does your life reveal about you? Secondly, count the cost of engaging in sin. I like what one writer said here. He said, don't listen to sin's sale pitch. It comes with a sales pitch, doesn't it? It always does. But sin will never tell you the truth about its end. It always offers freedom and only gives enslavement. It always promises joy and only produces bitterness. It always promises unending happiness and only gives regret. Sin never. Now, Mom always said, never say never, and it's always bad to say always. But but I use the word intentionally. Sin never will deliver on its promises. In fact, it will always, ultimately, only give the opposite of its promises. Sin always deceives. Sin never tells the truth about itself. But God tells the truth about sin. And the truth about sin is, verse 6, it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. It will come. It will come. God will not hold back. God will not be restrained. Friend, there's always a cost to sin. Have you considered the cost of remaining in your sin? We We say count the cost of discipleship, count the cost of obedience. It's worth also saying count the cost of a lack of discipleship, count the cost of disobedience. What will sin cost you? Sin may make you physically sick. That's Psalm 32. That's the psalm that we read at the beginning of the worship service this morning. Sin can make your conscience unbearably heavy. That's also Psalm 32. Sin will hinder your prayer. That's Psalm 66. Sin will squelch your desire for the life-giving Word of God. That's 1 Peter 2, another passage we read this morning. Sin will harm those around you and make it easier for them to sin. Do you know that when you sin, you are, you are providing a temptation for others to follow in your lead and making it easier for them to sin because they see you sin and say, well, if it's good enough for him, it must be okay for me too. And you've led a brother into sin. Sin will result in a loss of confidence of your salvation. It will result in a loss of inner joy. Sin will provoke God to jealousy for you. If you belong to him, and you sin, it is provoking God to jealousy and provoking Him to discipline you, to bring you back to Him. Oh, sin always carries a deep cost. So hear the words from Thomas Fuller, the Puritan. Lord, before I commit a sin, it seems to me so shallow that I may wade through it dry-shod from any guiltiness. 
But when I've committed it, it often seems so deep that I cannot escape without drowning. On the front end, it seems such a small thing. And on the back end, it is so overwhelming. Oh, friend, God has told us the cost of sin. Remember the cost and use that memory as a stimulant to run from sin in every form. And friend, if you are not this morning a believer in Jesus Christ, you must also hear this word. God is unrelenting in His wrath. If you do not repent, if you do not turn away from your sin, if you do not embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior, He will. He will pour out His wrath on you. There, there is no escape from it except, except to trust in Jesus Christ. And if you trust in Christ, then He will free you from the penalty of sin and He will also free you from the power of sin. You must trust in Christ, but trusting in Christ, He will liberate you from your sin. There's another principle that the Apostle Paul gives us in this passage And it is stay away from sin and situations that lead you to sin. Notice what he says in uh, verse 8. He says, now you also put them all aside. In other words, you have a choice. You don't have to stay here. You can put them aside. In fact, verse 9, stop lying to one another. He means us to understand that we have a choice about sin. We don't have to sin. And he says, we should get away from it. Uh, uh, um, Joseph is the great example that we all often use here, right? So Joseph, when, when he's attacked by Potiphar's life, leaves his coat and runs, heads for the hills, running towards righteousness. And in contrast to, jo- to uh, Joseph is Jonah. Joseph ran from sin to righteousness, and Jonah ran from righteousness and to sin. The Apostle Paul says, put it all aside, lay it aside, stop doing it, don't engage in it. Friends, there is no sin that is good for you. Every sin should be put aside. Every sin should be run away from as we make our way to Jesus Christ. So Paul says in Romans chapter 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make a few small provisions for the flesh according to its lusts. Ah, I got you to look up. Make no provision for the flesh. Don't, don't, don't give the flesh even a single entry point into your life. A few years ago, a Bowling Green University student by the name of Robert Ricketts was taken to the hospital with, with a head wound. He was bleeding from his head and, and he got the wound when he was hit by a Conrail train. How was he hit in the head by a Conrail train, you might ask? Because, he told police, he wanted to see how close he could put his head to a moving train without getting hit. Now, friends, that's just a recipe for disaster. You're going to keep getting closer and closer and closer, and what's going to happen? The train's going to hit you in the head. Isn't that what we do with sin? Let me see how close I can get without having it harm me. Oh, friend, don't see how close you can get to it. See how far you can run from it. Listen to what Deepak Riju wrote in his book, Fighting for Purity. Picture yourself as a valiant knight, sword of the Spirit in your sheath, Shield in hand with the cross as its emblem, belt of truth around your waist, breastplate of righteousness on your chest. You are ready to do battle with your mortal enemy. Across from you is a fire-breathing 50-foot dragon, almond eyes, smoke billowing from its nostrils, spines from head to tail, fan-like wings and sharp teeth. It stares at you. Drool drips from its mouth. This dragon is your sin nature. It's your flesh. The stark reality of this battle is that if you don't kill sin, it will kill you. The dragon lunges at you. You hold up your shield and you swing your sword with all of your might. You fight, it attacks. 
You protect yourself and then you go on the offensive. The dragon steps back, but only temporarily. You're both constantly battling with each other. Listen to this. Whenever you engage in sin, it's like you're throwing this beast a juicy steak. The more you give it, the more it grows and it wants more. It's never satisfied. The only way to destroy its power is to starve it to death. Oh, friend, consider yourselves dead. Put them all aside. Stop. Don't feed the dragon. There's another principle that the Apostle gives us that's implied by this same phrase, put it all aside, and that is to hate your sin. In order to put sin aside, you must identify it for what it is and have no attraction to it and must hate it as God does. Listen, listen to the psalm of Psalm 26. I hate the assembly of evildoers and I will not sit with the wicked. Psalm 100 verse 3, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. Psalm 119, from your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Therefore I esteem all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. Proverbs chapter 8, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. My friends, you will not grow in righteousness until you learn to hate sin. There is a kind of hate. You you teach your kids, you teach your grandkids, don't say the word hate. It's always bad to say the word hate. Oh, friend, hate. Just make sure that the object of your hate is right, and that is hate sin. And the best way to hate sin is to go back to verses 1 to 4 and cultivate a love for Christ. If you cultivate a love for Christ and you find Him compelling, then sin will not be compelling and you will hate your sin. We might also say it this way, until you love Christ, you will never hate your sin. Or turn that around. If you, hate, if you love your sin, you will never love Christ. You will not grow in righteousness until you learn to hate your sin. Love Christ. Hate your sin. One more application that's not directly in this text, but is helpful to us to know anyway, and that is be ignorant about sin. Paul says this in Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, he says in verse 19, commending the Romans... The report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. You're obedient. And I'm delighted over your obedience. And then he offers a warning. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. There ought to be, there ought to be an innocence to evil so that you don't even know anything about it. He'll say in Ephesians chapter 5, you shouldn't even talk about such things. And the implication is you don't talk about it because you don't know about it. You haven't informed your mind about it. Friends, some of us are too conversant in the world's ways. We know too much. And we shouldn't know about it. I remember a number of years ago, a friend of mine asked me to be an accountability partner for him on the Internet, a man not in this church. And so I said, I'd be, I'd be happy to do that. And so I started getting reports of all the links. Every link that he clicked, I got a report that had that link in the report. And I looked at some of those links, and I just saw this principle being violated. So I asked him about it. I said, what? Why are you going to that? Oh, I'm just interested in the news. What about this one? Oh, I'm just kind of interested about, you know, that happening or whatever. What about that one? Well, you know, it's just kind of a, it's something that's happening in the world. I just want to be aware. I said, friend, don't go there. Don't, don't cover it up and say, well, I'm just, I'm just informing myself about what's in the news. No. No, you're feeding your mind on things that you ought not to know about. 
Close the newspaper. Turn it upside down. Throw it in the trash. You don't need to know. There's some things you just shouldn't be informed about. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, Do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In, in evil, be infants. You know what an infant's like? Three months old, laying on a little blanket? What does that three-month-old know? Nothing. It knows your face. It knows a food source. It knows when it needs a diaper change, though it can't articulate it quite that clearly. But it will tell you. What does an infant know? Nothing. What does that infant know about the world? Nothing. Friends, that's the way we ought to be. We ought to be absolutely ignorant about some things. And how are you going to do that? Identify sin for what it is. Need to change the way we're thinking about our sin. And in changing our way that we think about sin, we will identify sin for what it is. And we will also consider our new position. We've talked about this at length. Paul says it again in verse 9. Do not lie to one another. Why, Paul? Why shouldn't we lie? Why why shouldn't we do these things since you laid aside the old self with with its evil practices? This is what you were. It is not what you are. You, You are in Jesus Christ. You've been moved from the domain of darkness into the domain of light. You've been moved from from being controlled by Adam and sin to being controlled by Christ and righteousness. You've been given a new heart. You've been given a new inclination. And not only have you been given a new heart, but as one commentator rightly says, grace not only saves the soul with an everlasting salvation, but it also imparts a nature which delights in everything that belongs to God because it is divine. Not only, not only are we freed from the penalty of sin, we're freed from the power of sin. To continue in sin is not only inconsistent with what happened at salvation, it's also inconsistent with the power that is provided at salvation. Oh, friend, if you want to fight against sin, remember the new position you have in Christ Jesus. The battle to mortify sin begins not just by changing our habits, but by changing the way we think about sin and the way we think about God. Our Father, we thank you for your provision for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Some of us today are ensnared by sin. Would you give us freedom? And would you help us to push back against the flesh? Help us not to feed the dragon of the flesh. And in not feeding that dragon, might you also give us a compelling love for Christ. We pray in the name of Christ and for His glory. Amen.